0: This JMR Podcast is sponsored by the Journal of Medical Regulation, serving for over a century as the premier publication on physician licensure, discipline, and regulation. To learn more, visit jmronline.org.
1: Welcome to the JMR Podcast. I'm David Johnson, your host for today's podcast. We're recording on October 26th, 2020. And my guests today are Drs. Luke Beret and James McDonald. Dr. Bure serves as staff rheumatologist at Hawthorne Medical Associates. Dr. McDonald is the Chief Administrative Officer for the Rhode Island Board of Medical Licensure and Discipline. Their article, Reviewing Disciplinary Actions Taken by the Rhode Island Board Regarding Controlled Substances, appeared last year in the Journal of Medical Regulation. So, Dr. Barre, Dr. McDonald, welcome to the JMR podcast.
0: Thank you, it's great to be here today.
1: Thank you. Wonderful. So let me start with something very basic. What led you to undertake this specific line of research?
0: Yeah, let me take a stab at that first. So, you know, the medical board in Rhode Island is a little bit unique in that it sits inside the Department of Health. Uh, So there's a big emphasis on dealing with the overdose epidemic in Rhode Island. Uh, So I have multiple hats I wear here. One of them is, in addition to running the state medical board, being the medical director for the overdose prevention program. But it's really been a priority of the director of health to really understand, what are we doing to our people here? You know, as physicians, you know, one of the things that we heard early was, first, do no harm. And the big point being is, are we as doctors, you know, part of the problem here? And so since it was an emphasis, I got here in February of 2012. It was an emphasis then, it's still an emphasis now. But one of the things we kind of noticed after a while, you know, I've had a lot of people who have been working with me, um, but when Dr. Barry came to join me, he was a preventive medicine um, resident. He's done as a rheumatologist, but he decided to do some preventive medicine training after that, and we were looking about projects, and we had a Providence College student with us at the time, and this is something I just kind of wanted to look into, because one of the things that hadn't happened in Rhode Island was we hadn't systematically looked at disciplinary issues, and one of the things I just said to my team was, You know, sometimes when I don't know what I don't know, I feel a little uncomfortable. Uh, So I'd like to know what I don't know. And so we just said, why don't we take a look at what this is all about and try to categorize it and analyze it and see if we can get some trends from all this and understand what's been going on. So that's really what started the project. I guess it was more just curiosity and a desire to systematically review these disciplinary actions.
1: Well, and it sounds like then getting some of the right people uh, available to you to take advantage of some of these opportunities, too.
0: Well, it, it isn't every day that you get a rheumatologist who's doing a preventive medicine residency who's at your disposable at no charge, and not only that but has access to everything that's available at Dartmouth because Dr. Barry was at Dartmouth, so it was like – so a project with a little bit of meat on the bone was what I was looking for, and so it was great to have Dr. Barry come join me for this.
2: Oh, wonderful. And I would just echo that, you know, um, so certainly inspired by Dr. McDonald and his team at uh, the Department of Health and and, uh, the board. um, But I would just sort of put in a plug for uh, any preventive medicine residents who are doing their uh, governmental health uh, experience to consider reaching out to their uh, Department of Health and their Board of Medical licensure as a a source for uh, really important public health work experience. uh, Because it certainly was for me.
1: Wonderful. Well, gentlemen, could you summarize at least a high level, some of the findings from your research? And also, were there any surprises in uh, what you
2: found? Yeah, absolutely. So um, I'll uh, give that a try. So, you know, we undertook a a review of disciplinary actions in Rhode Island from 2012 uh, to 2017. And of particular interest to us were the disciplinary actions that were related to controlled substances and you know overall really high level the good news is we found that very few physicians in general face disciplinary actions in other words these are relatively rare events Um, in all there were 207 disciplinary actions during that period of time of which uh, roughly a quarter 47 of them were found to be related to controlled substances and so we wanted to break down uh, those uh, controlled substances related actions into different categories to try and get an idea of you know which behaviors were getting people into trouble. And so we broke it down based on prescribing to self or to family, uh, over prescribing. And the third category was a little bit broader, was inappropriate prescribing. And then we also looked at uh, which uh, disciplinary actions followed from those behaviours, and and they ranged from loss of licence to reprimands and probation. Overall, we found that uh, prescribing to self uh, or family was the least common uh, behaviour that got people into trouble, and that inappropriate prescribing was uh, the most common and that the uh, most common disciplinary actions were uh, loss of the controlled substance uh, registration and uh, reprimand we also looked a little bit at some of the demographics of the physicians who face disciplinary actions Um, we found that uh, controlled substance related disciplinary actions uh, were in general in older physicians Um, the average age was 63 as compared to the average age of the licensed physician population, which in Rhode Island during that period of time was about 52. And uh, that was also true in actions that were not related to controlled substances. So that was also a slightly older physician population. I guess in terms of surprising findings, uh, I think we were a little surprised that uh, all of the controlled substance disciplinary actions were against male physicians. And in the end, I don't think that we uh, had a good explanation for why that uh, was. Uh, And this was actually a trend that was true amongst disciplinary actions that were not related to controlled substances, where uh, not all, but most of them were against male physicians as well. Interesting, you know. And
1: my understanding is that when you look at sort of national data on disciplinary actions, uh, the fact that you had uh, male physicians disproportionately represented actually is fairly consistent with, at a national level, uh, male physicians are more likely than female to be disciplined by a, a medical board.
0: Uh, yeah, it's interesting you say that. W- what surprised me about that it was it was all men, and and mm-hmm. one of the things that I thought was odd was like, so I'm on the prosecution end of every one of these cases, so I can assure you. There wasn't a bias. It wasn't like we had women physicians who were getting in trouble and we just gave right. them a pass. That, that wasn't happening. And, and part of how these cases came in, they're complaint driven. You know, we weren't doing surveillance on physicians either. In other words, we got a complaint, we investigated it. Um, but that surprised me. I still remember the day, it was some afternoon when Justin, the student who was on the project with us, we are just doing one of our calls on this project, said, did you notice these were all men? And I was like, no, no, they, they, you must. Be. I mean, he's a student. I must be looking at it wrong. And so I went and looked at the data again, and then I went and looked back at the source again, and I just looked at it three or four times. And I remember Dr. Barry and I talking. I said, "Huh, how did I not notice this? I was here for all these cases, and it just struck me as just odd. And it's one of those things where, you know, subsequent to 2017, there has been, you know, a female who's had a problem. But it's interesting how." This surprised me, and I I think it's interesting. I still don't know why. It's one of those things that's a curiosity for us now. We're looking at it in some of the other projects we're doing is, does this pattern still hold um, as well? It's very intriguing, you know, very intriguing.
1: Well, like so much research then, sometimes some of what you find leads to additional questions that you want to pursue going forward.
0: You know, it does, and it's interesting. The older physician didn't surprise me as much, but we were doing some work with the Medical Society about older physicians, about where to go with that. We still haven't solved what to do with the older physician, but it was one of those things that made me think a little bit about the older physician. There's some data about that as well, that, you know, as we age in our career, you know, you would think our wisdom would overcome our shortcomings, and I Mm -hmm. suppose to a large degree it does. However, there's times where you see, when you think about getting in trouble with the state medical board, That's a complaint. We had to do investigation and and we had to find problems. And I think that's where that was very telling as well. Like older physicians were more likely to get in trouble. Um, And and I don't know that I know why for that as well. But I think, you know, one of the things I recollect is medical records, not the quality they should have been. Prescribing patterns, very consistent with generational patterns and not necessarily the most recent evidence. Mm -hmm. These are some of the things that I kind of noticed on a high level, which was very intriguing to me.
1: Well, gentlemen, let me go back to one thing you mentioned. You, you described that uh, in your classification of the disciplinary actions you uh, involving prescribing, you, you sorted things into three main categories, over-prescribing, uh, inappropriate prescribing, and then prescribing to family or self. Uh, and I think you started to touch on this, but I want to just come back to it. Because my, my question is, did uh, the type of prescribing violation tend to see different types of actions taken by the board? Uh, I
0: it, it did and let me just sort of define those terms first just so it's okay. clear what we're talking about so over prescribing the way we define that as like you prescribed a year's worth of opioids in 90 days and you know i mean that's just irresponsible i don't know how you slice right. it any other way um, right. and it provided for very interesting conversations across the table with a doctor when you're sitting there saying you know here's the prescriptions can you explain to me why i have 365 days worth of vicodin in a 90-day period And it's an awkward conversation, but it's very telling um, if you have the conversation because some of those ended up in summary suspension because that is an immediate danger to the public. Like if you Mm -hmm. are paying so little attention to your prescribing that you have a year's worth of product out there in the 90 calendar days, then you're in immediate danger to the public because you're not paying attention. You're clearly just fueling diversion. So that's an example of overprescribing. In those cases, we're more likely to end up in loss of license. Inappropriate prescribing reflects violating regulations. Now, we started regulating pain prescribing in 2015, March of 15, after two years of really hard work putting regulations together, three public hearings, and a lot of stakeholder meetings, and just a lot of just good old-fashioned conversation with physicians, including medical societies and hospitals. We just got some decent regulations in place. And what was surprising about our regulations to me was the physicians actually wanted them. And that surprised me at first but it has a lot to do. I think as doctors, we're used to getting an A in everything we do. We're just used to always getting A's. Mm-hmm. And what people realizing was, I'm not doing this very well, and I'm seeing colleagues get in trouble. I don't want to get in trouble with the state medical board. Can you? Would you mind explaining us what the rules were? It's it's kind of funny. I remember one day going to see my own doctor because I was sick. You know, I had pneumonia. I'm coughing and just shaking and chills, and I'm I'm literally dying in front of this guy. And he says to me. Jim, what are we going to do about this opioid prescribing? It's something else. It's terrible. As I'm coughing and hacking and dying from my I said, <laughs> we are doing something about it, man, but if you could get me to live through this, it would go a lot quicker, you know? And But it just really speaks to, I think, as doctors, how we sometimes treat each other as patients. And it's like, and it, it, it kind of reminds me of a funny story, but it really gets back to this issue of what inappropriate prescribing is. Right. And our regulations aren't onerous. We just need you to practice medicine. You need to examine your patient. You need to have a treatment plan. You need to have education about the patient about the risks and benefits if it's more than 90 days you need to have an agreement with your patient and there's a certain morphine milligram equivalent threshold where you should consider referring to pain management you don't have to you just need a document you consider it we have a requirement to check the prescription drug monitoring program but it even wasn't that onerous it was only the initial prescription and then we got to prescribing to self or family as a separate category it's interesting i first got here in 2012 i remember talking to the attorney who was here and i said You know, where is the law that says you can't prescribe yourself a family? And he said to me, well, we don't have that law because everyone knows you can't do that. (laughs) And I said, got it. Okay. Well, after being here a year or two, I realized, well, not everybody knows you can't do it because people are getting in trouble for it. So, and this gets back to doctors generally want to get an A. Uh, so what we did was put it in regulation. Uh, we didn't put it in regulation until 2018, though. And it was one of those things where we were sanctioning it beforehand because it wasn't the standard of care. In other words, standard of care is you don't prescribe Vicodin to yourself or to your immediate family. And you surely don't prescribe Vicodin to your immediate family where you've over-prescribed. And this is things that we were seeing. And, and you know, to some degree, you wanted the pharmacy community to help us out a little bit. And, and I guess they did, didn't fill all those prescriptions. But this is one of those things where this gets back to sometimes you really do have to spell out for everybody what is the obvious and that you really have to understand you cannot prescribe a controlled substance to your immediate family member In Rhode Island the way we regulated it was you can never do it and I know the AMA is a statement that's a little bit more liberal Mm -hmm. saying in emergencies but they're really we got to be honest with each other there really aren't emergencies where you have to prescribe Vicodin to yourself or an immediate family member those those situations just don't exist. And, and, and the department agreed and the board agreed, so we put that in regulations, so that was codified, um, which I think was an important change. But those were the three categories. And I think what you see is with overprescribing, more likely to end up in loss of license. With inappropriate prescribing, more likely to end up with a reprimand, required CME, and monitoring. And with self-prescribing, there was a mix of some, if they were impaired physicians, loss of license. Um, if not, then it was... Um, you know, reprimand and, and continuing medical education and monitoring um, would come out of that. So there was a slight, there was a slight difference in how that worked out.
1: Understood. You know, with any kind of quantitative research, I'm always curious about challenges researchers tend to face along the way. I, it's not uncommon. I mean, for example, whether it's assembling your data set, the actual data analysis or interpretation. So i I'm curious if, like many research endeavors, there were some challenges you had to deal with in this particular
2: inquiry. Yeah, um, absolutely. So um, you know, this this uh, was a little bit of work from a few different people, and um, I, I guess uh, obtaining the actual uh, data was not all that difficult. You know, the the list of people with disciplinary actions as well as the licensee list are are both freely available, but. But actually, putting those uh, into you know a useful format uh, so that it was you know actual data points uh, was a little bit of labor, uh, including people who came before me. Um, the student uh, Justin Gallo, who is co-author, uh, did a lot of that work too. Um, and then there was also uh, some difficulties completing some uh, missing information, particularly in demographic information, which involved uh, you know some manual searches. Um, I think interpreting the results, um, it, particularly because, you know, there's some small numbers that we're dealing with um, is a little bit of a challenge and you know, we have uh, only uh, 20 to 50 disciplinary actions in a year. And so I think it was important to sort of look at it over a number of years to really get a complete picture of, of what was going on.
1: Well, as a follow-up then, let me ask you this. How did uh, the research, uh, in this case, perhaps benefit uh, the Rhode Island board? Has, has it led to specific changes in the board's practices or approaches at this time?
0: Yeah, it did. And I think this is one of those things when you don't know what you don't know, that's an old axiom of medicine, and your patient is going to have a problem. And one of the things that we learned is consistency is something that really I think every state medical board looks for. But one of the things we saw was, you know, gee, we weren't incredibly consistent here. Like for inappropriate prescribing cases, every case should have had required CME and every case should have had required monitoring, you know, kind of that trust and verify approach. And that was one of those things where the board talked about said, well, you know, I think it was just over time. We just didn't always approach every case the same. And this is part of why, systematically analyzing what you've done, although painful, uh, sometimes can be very helpful because then you're like, well, we just want to be just and fair, and everybody who has the same infraction generally should end up in roughly the same spot. Um, So one of the things we saw was uh, about 80% of the cases were getting continuing medical education required through that Vanderbilt curriculum. It's done in a lot of different places across the country, which was great, uh, but only 40% were getting monitoring. And that was one of those things where it's like, why is that the case? Because if someone got in trouble with us with their prescribing once, wouldn't you want to trust but verify that their prescribing had headed in the right direction? And so what the board realized was we really need to insist on, you know, kind of a minimum sanction of a reprimand, continuing medical education, going to the Vanderbilt course, and... Having monitoring for a period of time, whether it was 12 months or three years, depending on the nature of the infraction, was really where they ended up. And I think those were important changes to help the board be consistent, but also it does a service to the physician who's gotten in trouble. And that may sound kind of odd, but it's interesting. You know, the vast majority of physicians who go to the Vanderbilt type curriculum, whether it's done by CPEP or University of Florida or Vanderbilt, uh, they come back changed. You know, I've heard more than one say. I wish I had taken this course in medical school. I wouldn't have gotten in trouble if I had taken this course. I hear that a lot. And so I think that's that's interesting. From people who got in trouble to demonstrate that insight and positivity and get it back to me, the guys running the medical board, I think it speaks volumes of how good the course is and how collegial a relationship we're able to establish. The monitoring has been very helpful too, though, because I think whether you look at a contract monitor or find a board-approved monitor, which a lot of times just ends up being a board-approved monitor. Again, a Colleague, we give them a little monitoring program to follow. Um, it just helps the physician stay out of trouble and see all those new skills. Because one of the things we don't want to see is people running into the same problem in a couple of years. Uh, because patients haven't changed. You know, If patients were able to manipulate the doctor and demand opioids and get you thinking a certain way, so you're more likely to predisposed to prescribing it appropriately. We need to change the way you think about how you do this. Now, and what I want to make that really clear is it wasn't like these were bad people. I mean, just because physicians mm-hmm. got in trouble, they're they're not bad people. They're all good people. And as I can tell, there really wasn't a lot of nefarious activity going on. I mean, law enforcement was involved in maybe one or two cases, but for the most part, they were not. Um, sometimes it was physicians who just got hoodwinked by people, got a little bit confused about what to do, lost their way quite a bit. And I found a lot of times it was people who just kind of just really lost their way um, and were too interested in let the physician or excuse me let the patient drive the bus as
2: mm-hmm. opposed
0: to them being the clinical care leader and I think when you let the patient drive the bus and lead the care you know I'm all in fan of, of shared decision making and that's wonderful but when the patient's the one who's directing the care that doesn't go well for the patient and often not well for the physician and so these were just some of the high level concepts I took out of that
1: excellent that's very helpful to hear now i'm I'm going to ask a question that in some ways i guess offers the opportunity for you to provide some advice and i'm i'm thinking specifically about staff at other medical boards who might be considering similar research that draws upon their disciplinated disciplinary data and so i'm wondering are there specific lessons learned or maybe suggestions you might have based upon your experience because I think what what you've shared already suggests that I think that uh, there's a great deal that any board can gain by doing this kind of research.
0: Yeah, so a couple of thoughts came to mind. Like, I think consistency is important. And I think if we don't, you know that old expression, if you don't learn from your history, you're doomed to repeat it. I, I think it's important to understand where you've been, especially as new board members come on board. One of the things I try to do is... You know, my job is not to tell board members how to vote. I'm here to run the board and help them to make good decisions, but I often give them that historical perspective. But if there's not a consistent historical perspective, then it gets uncomfortable for people. So one of the things we did is we've looked at opiate prescribing, and air-controlled substance, which is what we are talked about today. We've also looked at boundary violations um, because that was important as well. And we've looked at other attributes. Right now we're doing an analysis on, malpractice cases in rhode island and it really gets into like just trying to understand where have we been and i really think there's wisdom even though i can guarantee every state medical board has too few resources i've never heard anyone at the federation meeting say we're just we're rolling in it this year it's all good just never happens you know yes
1: yes and and i
0: think it gets back to we've got to prioritize projects. And one of the things I think is if you have access to alerted people, like I did with Dr. Barry, and you can have some data analytics done, why not take a moment to just look at where you've been um, and see where you're going? You know, we've looked at all our disciplinary actions in aggregate, and one of the things we saw with that is, again, older physicians. And so why that was helpful for us is when we did targeted academic detailing, I was talking to um, the PharmD who does our academic detailing just this morning, you know, People are very positive. They really appreciate her visit. And we're really bringing people on as allies now. And I think part of why we've seen such an improvement in prescribing in Rhode Island, and we've seen a vast improvement in prescribing really incredibly um, better, we're doing much less disciplinary actions when it comes to controlled substance prescribing. And I think that's what we both want. Like when I think about what does the state medical board want and what do physicians want, we really want to practice medicine to the best of our profession but it's, I don't want anyone to get in trouble. You know, it's always regrettable when that happens. But that's where I've seen us move, where there's actually much less physicians getting in trouble for controlled substance prescribing. One, since we put regulations in and Two, we've done a... Con- ton of continuing medical education like uh, you know i i've never said no to a speaking engagement in rhode island's a small state i've literally been everywhere and sometimes big crowds sometimes small crowds it doesn't much matter to me i just go wherever people ask to make sure that they get the same continuing medical education from the board about what we're looking for when it comes to responsible prescribing and then we offer this one-on-one academic detailing, which we give CME for as well, the one of our farm Ds. that's another premium product we order at no, offer at no charge. And and I think what, what helps in that regard so much is people really get to understand the clinical role for opioids and then the clinical alternatives. And one of the things that's nice about us having a PharmD through one of our other grants that we have is when you can put a clinician in front of a doctor for an hour, one-on-one, and walk through scenarios, that's a great deal of, it, you know, a nice product to offer now we do this through one of our cdc grants in the department of health but it's it's nice how we work together and one of the things about rhode island of course is since the medical board sits inside the department of health i have everything the department of health has as my disposal to help the prescribing community and we're far more interested in educating rather than prosecuting um, doctors because it really gets everybody to where we want to be which is safe patient care
2: and I think, uh, you know, as a, as a clinician, I would just uh, echo uh, what Dr. McDonald said, which is that, you know, I think we uh, clinicians generally want to try to identify our own blind spots and uh, any resources that can, you know, help us avoid, you know, especially getting into trouble is going to be uh, a, a big win. Well, this is really fascinating. I, I appreciate you spending some
1: time with us today. Are there Any final thoughts or observations you might like to share to our listeners?
0: So here's a final thought, and I I think of it this way: is you know, my guess, if you're listening to a podcast like this, you're familiar with state medical boards, and it's it's you know, it's funny. I often say this around the Department of Health and the medical board: we're just not in the happy business. You know, no one likes getting letters with my name (laughs) on it, and no one loves coming into the state medical board. But one of the things I just think is important to remember is. You know as state medical boards we need to encourage each other and and try to be just and fair you know one of the things that we moved into in 2019 was just culture um, as a framework for us to look at our cases and really it gets back to consistency and equity and i think one final thought i'd leave is that one of the things i've really seen in this state medical board from 2012 to present is we're getting much better at being consistent much better getting equitable And that's a win for everybody. And I think when you look at why state medical boards exist, justice, speaking up for patients, you know, keeping um, the standards of our profession at the highest level, this is why we exist.
1: Wonderful. Well, Dr. Bray, Dr. McDonald, thank you so much. Uh, Our listeners can access your article on Rhode Island's disciplinary actions around controlled substances at jmrodline.org like to thank you, thank our listeners, and I hope everyone will join us for our next JMR podcast.
0: This JMR podcast is sponsored by the Journal of Medical Regulation, serving for over a century as the premier publication on physician licensure, discipline, and regulation. To learn more, visit jmronline.org.